Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is time for another injection uh, of common sense, it has to be said, uh, because, of course, uh, the world seems to have lost its collective mind, really, uh, over the A-level exams fiasco. Flustered teenagers are still whining that their lives have been ruined. Greedy lawyers are threatening to sue the government and demos are being organised demanding justice for state schools. For heaven's sake! And it's all because little Trini and Julian can't go to medical school or their desired Oxbridge College. Well, I've got news for all you middle-class snowflakes. The vast majority of the country isn't actually interested in your plight. In fact, the vast majority of the country's teenagers won't be going to university at all to waste daddy's money. No, they'll be too busy going to work to fix the ailing economy and get us out of the economic disaster that COVID-19 has left behind. That's right. The vast majority of people in this country are far more interested in the government's inability to stop thousands of illegal migrants from crossing the channel in expensive, rigid, inflatable boats, only to be bussed to hotels all over the country where they can stay for free as long as they like. This morning, Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage joins us after his latest video revealed that a hotel in Pretty Patel's very own constituency has been block booked at taxpayers' expense and the Home Office has already admitted that it was a mistake. Without Nigel Farage and his investigations, we would not know about any of this, so I thank him uh, in advance before we talk to him today. But it is a complete and utter shambles, is it not? And this government needs to get to grips with it. Forget about the A-levels, forget about the GCSEs, get to grips with these hundreds of people coming to this country every single day without anybody trying to stop them. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by Peter Hitchens with his take on the week and the latest government shenanigans around the lockdown. And Times columnist Matthew Syed will be here with a clarion call for more independence and responsibility for our children during this exam's nonsense. Plus, I'll be asking why Morrison's is doing away with their bags for life. Does that mean we'll all be getting our money back? Because I bought a bag for life. I presumed it was for life because that's what it said on the side. But if it's not for life, then I want a refund. That's what I'm going to be saying. 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there are certain stories that the media seems to be obsessed with. Exams, apparently, is the story that the media is currently obsessed with. I'm not obsessed with exams because, as I said, the vast majority of people will not be affected by the exam results. The GCSEs, the A-levels, the universities of this country. Most people in this country don't go to university. Most people in this country are more interested in other stories. And that's why we at Talk Radio are growing faster than any radio station in the land because we do the right stories that you actually care about. And the one story that everybody cares about right now uh, is the migrant crisis, the fact that illegal immigration is coming to this country on a daily basis, on an hourly basis sometimes, on the east coast, down at Dover, uh, down in Rye, down in Hastings, uh, towards Bexhill, towards the southeast corner of this country. There are people coming here having paid thousands of pounds to organise criminals 
and they're not being stopped. Nigel Farage, thank goodness, uh, is on the case. We spoke to him a couple of weeks ago and ever since then, the government have been running around uh, like blue. Um, I can't remember if I'm allowed to say it, but uh, you know the kind of flies I'm talking about. Uh, they're basically running around trying to look as if they're doing something, but seemingly doing absolutely nothing. Nigel, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. Good morning and thank you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Nigel. Tell us how you came about this great story that even in her own constituency, um, Priti Patel is putting up, at taxpayers' expense, illegal immigrants. Well, there are two parts of the story. The first is the one that I started covering back in April, which was that the numbers of people coming across the channel illegally by inflatable boat was rising rapidly. So I, I, I got onto that because it seemed to me that no broadcast media of any kind at all were even noticing what was happening. So I got onto it and I you know, predicted that numbers would go through the roof this summer. And indeed they are, you know, we're well over four and a half thousand people that have come in by boat so far this year. And they're the ones, Mike, that we know of. Yeah. I mean, for example, yesterday, um, a dinghy hit, hit the beach at a place called Kingsdown. There were eight men on it. Five just disappeared off into the Kent countryside probably never to be seen again. So it's over four and a half thousand that we know of. And I can tell you, as we speak, Border Force are bringing vessels into Dover at this very moment. So I tried to get people to wake up to what was happening. And I think finally, uh, we are having a national conversation about it. But I then started to ask myself, where does everybody go? Mm. And uh, as a result of what I was doing, I was putting out uh, on my social media platforms requests for members of the public to say what they were seeing in their local districts and that's when the hotel story hove into view that's when i found out that we're accommodating forty-eight thousand illegal immigrants in this country in hotels or in private accommodation that's what i found out the government has already budgeted for four billion pounds of expenditure on this alone that's just the accommodation let alone all the other costs. Um, and so I started touring the country. Um, I spoke to you about it after I'd been up to Bromsgrove uh, and seen a hotel that had been taken over in Sajid Javid's constituency. And of course, him a former Home Secretary. I then went up to Liverpool, uh, where I found a little seaside town called Hoylake. Beautiful place. I mean, they play the Open Golf Championship yep. there. It, it's, it's super posh, Hoylake. And I found that a hotel there had been filled up with 50 illegals, but they'd had a day trip on a coach to Anfield, visited the trophy room, walked down the tunnel, Amazing. been on the pitch, which I thought was astonishing. Yeah. Um, and then last Thursday night, uh, a fellow called Mark, who lives in Pretty Patel's constituency, said yesterday something happened at a place called the Rivenhall Hotel. Uh, it looks to me like it's been closed to the public. So up I went on Friday, and sure enough, uh, you know, I went into the hotel. Um, they are block booked. There are no rooms available. And sure enough, it was filled with people who recently came across the English Channel. And the story here really is that Pretty Patel talks a very good game. She talks a much better game than the rest of the cabinet. She's the toughie. She's the one going to send in the Navy. She's the one going to send them back to France. She's the one that's going to do all these things. And here it is. The problem has landed in her own backyard, or perhaps more relevantly, her constituents' backyard. So I released this video at five o'clock last night, um, and I was stunned that I got an immediate response, Mike, from the Home Office. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Home Office basically saying that 
an error was made, as normally we put um, we put asylum seekers, as they call them, in major conurbations. And in this case, uh, they've been put into leafy northern Essex. Now, um, I'm pleased, of course, to have got the response. I'm sure that many in Whittam, uh, which is the major town in that constituency, will be pleased because a promise has been made that these people will be removed and it'll return to being a normal hotel. But I can tell you that in the last few weeks, I visited, as I said earlier, Hoylake, a small seaside town of four and a half thousand people. I visited Bromsgrove in rural Worcestershire. I visited one hotel, a spa hotel, outside Congleton in the Cheshire countryside. I tell you what, I wouldn't mind a couple of nights staying there. <laughs> so I think, I think what they've done here is rush. They've panicked over the embarrassment of the video. They, they, they really very embarrassed because it's happened to Pretty Patel. They've rushed out this statement, but they've now made a rod for their own back. Because if you have one of these hotels in your area and you're not living in Birmingham, London, Manchester or Glasgow, you've now got every right to get onto your MP and say, well, according to the Home Office, they shouldn't be here. Well, isn't it interesting, Nigel, because since you did appear the last time uh, with that incredible story about the Bromsgrove Hotel, I've also been urging my listeners to write to their MPs and they've been getting various different results. And I think that the pressure is now being brought to bear by individual MPs who, let's face it, don't like being bombarded by questions from the ghastly public who pay their salaries. They'd rather not have to deal with it. So they're now putting pressure on the government uh, to actually find out what is going on. And I think that's a massively uh, big step that, that, that you have made the government take and that we can now see in action. But we've been doing the same thing. Now, since um, uh, since you appeared, we found out that there's hotels in Hull, there's hotels in Chester, there's hotels yeah. in Sunderland, there's hotels in, uh, I think, Swansea. There's hotels all over the country, basically, that we are being reported to from listeners uh, who, are, who are, doing, are doing exactly what you've been doing, trying to get a room, finding out that they yeah. can't, and the block yeah, yeah. bookings are made. So this is a massive operation. I wouldn't be surprised if it's even bigger than 48,000. Well, it may well be. And of course, you know, I mean, in a 10 day period, in a 10 day period from the 4th of August to the 13th of August, over a thousand people came into the country through Dover. And that's what the Home Office admits to, because I can tell you Mm. there's some real fiddling of the figures going on here. Oh, for sure. Absolutely right. And also, we're going to take this up with the Home Office as well, because in their statement yesterday that they issued, as you say, very rapidly, uh, they say the error was the result of operational failures where the correct policy and procedures were not followed. So we're going to be asking them, well, what is the correct policy and the correct procedure? And uh, how do you actually uh, come about uh, uh, finding these hotels and placing these people in them? And for how long? And when are they going to be released? Because we keep being told this is all about COVID, that the reason they have to put them in hotels is to is to, is to to keep people from spreading disease but there's no end to it is there no and i can tell you um for example on friday in pretty patel's constituency not only were large groups mingling outside the hotel they were also walking down the main road going into town Mm. so any thought any thought that 14 day quarantines are applying is for the birds 14 day quarantines only apply to those who cross the channel in a law-abiding manner 
We've also been doing some research with the Home Office themselves to discover where a lot of these people are coming from. And I don't know whether you saw uh, this last week, but we found, aside from those who who give no kind of uh, place of abode, if you like, and we don't know where they come from, the four top countries are Iran, Albania, Iraq and Pakistan. We also had Stuart Jackson on the phone uh, last Friday saying that he knows for a fact from the Metropolitan Police that most people who come here from Albania to become asylum seekers end up in the drugs trade. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people will finish up, of course, um, either in criminality or effectively as part of the modern day slave trade. I mean, we've seen these revelations about the rag trade in Leicester and the number of people working in that that are here illegally, uh, being paid way below the minimum wage. We know the repeated scandals that come up from fruit farms and the, the fruit picking industry all over the country. I mean, you know, there are many that come who have the impression that the streets are paved with gold in this country, uh, who will finish up living pretty miserable lives. And this is the one dimension I don't get with the left. I don't get with the Labour Party. How can you simply turn a blind eye to 21st century slavery that is now happening in this country? Mm. And also, interestingly enough, there was a great piece in the Sunday Times this weekend uh, about a young uh, boy from Iran, who's I think still a teenager, um, who basically ended up in this country against his will. He wanted to get out of Iran because he'd become a Christian and he felt that his life was in danger. Fair enough. He went to Greece. Um, but the human traffickers who were in charge of him said, we do not get our money until you reach the UK. It's that simple. He would have been happy to stay in Greece. Yeah. He would have been happy to stay in France. But he was made to come to the UK because the traffickers said, this is where the money is. Yeah, I did read that story and it was very interesting. But you'll notice something. Every portrayal of who is coming across the channel on the BBC or Sky News or most of our press will show you a heavily pregnant woman, Mm. will show you a six-year-old boy, or in this case, somebody who was a genuine Christian convert in a country like Iran, where that's not a very safe thing to do. What is being, Mike, completely and utterly ignored here is that 85% of those that come are young single men below the age of 30. And in most cases, we do not have a clue who any of them are, but it's a pretty fair bet that amongst them are a sprinkling of people with ISIS-style sympathies. Why do I say that? Because we saw that happen in the atrocity that took place in Paris a few years ago, where five of the eight crossed the Mediterranean by boat. And just think, and I, and I know I'm not supposed to say this because it's it's awful and it's dreadful and we should bury the truth and never ever expose listeners to talk radio or elsewhere uh, to this, but we've seen a murder in Glasgow, a murder in Reading, committed within the last few weeks by people who'd come into the country illegally. And I, I want people to think about this. There is a genuine national security concern here as well. Well, we also saw another video, did we not, last week, where the men were running up the stairs from a beach um, somewhere just around the corner, I think, from Dover. Uh, You spotted a guy uh, who seemed to be handing some money to someone, uh, another guy who was on a mobile phone smiling and laughing. I mean, you know, yes, many of these people may well be desperate, but not all of them are. No, and that particular incident, and and that's amazing footage, isn't it? It is. That is amazing footage of a dinghy being very, very accurately navigated to a set of steps with a bridge then over the railway. There were 15 
discarded life jackets. But by the time the police got there, they only rounded up 11 people. And I have two independent witness reports of members of the public who were there who said, he's the guy that we paid the money to. So there's a trafficker on the run. And yet, do you know something, Mike? No single national newspaper or broadcast station until this conversation now has even covered the fact that it's not just migrants coming in, traffickers are using this route as well. And it's yeah. just not even being talked about. I know. I mean, there's a case currently which we can't go into the details of because it's a live case, but two members uh, of of, uh, um, of the public were arrested yesterday in Slough, um, yes. Afghan nationals apparently, uh, for human yeah. trafficking, alongside two other people from Afghanistan who they supposedly smuggled into the country. So, you know... If, if the judiciary at least might be waking up to it, you know, but we surely must be able to track these people. We surely must be able to get better well, at knowing where they are and where they're going. Yes, but then what do we do? You see, last week, 14 people were flown back to France and Germany. All right. Yeah. These were people who would previously claimed asylum in France and Germany. And under the rules, under the EU rules, we are allowed to send them back. But another 19 people who we wanted to put on that plane weren't let on that plane. And of course, there are activist lawyers, yeah. activist left-wing lawyers, who will do their utmost to keep everybody in the country. And we need to understand that the only way to solve all of this is legislative change. That the, that the legislation that Blair brought in from the Human Rights Act onwards makes it very difficult to, to, to defend the integrity of this country and its borders. So I'd say to Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson, we don't need the Navy in the channel. It sounds great, but we've already got border force. Mm. We've already got lifeboats. We've already got spotter planes. We've got drones. What we need is a change in the rules and a simple change that says, just like the Australians did 10 years ago, that anybody that comes here illegally via this route will not be allowed to stay. And until we do this, nothing will be solved and the crisis will roll on day after day after day with massive pressure being put on communities all over this country, not to mention the taxpayer. And I was down at the coast yesterday walking the dog on the beach, not a million miles away from Bexhill, and it was literally like a mill pond. And as long as yeah. the weather is the same as it has been for the past few weeks, you know, it's going to be very simple to make the crossing. Also, as you quite rightly pointed out in that video from Anfield, if you've got guys sending videos back to their mates in uh, in a sort of makeshift camp on the, on the coast of Calais to say, come to Britain, you know, they'll put you up in this great <coughs> hotel for three square meals a day. And we guess what? We went to went to Anfield as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, nearly 40 quid a week spending money, yeah. free health care, free dental care. And if your asylum claim does succeed, you can bring the whole family as well. Right. Is it any wonder that people are coming to this country in the numbers that they are? They don't get anything like that in France. No, indeed. And just one final thing, Nigel. Were you able to establish whether this particular place in Essex was being operated by Serco? Uh, because you've exposed them in the past. We've learned that there's two other companies, one of them called Mears yes. uh, and another whose name escapes me for the moment. Um, there's plenty of this going on and there's plenty of people in this country making money out of it as well. Yeah, once again, it was Serco. They're going to get nearly two billion quid over the next 10 years for this. Uh, and just remember, it's Serco who were also put in charge of test, track and trace, yeah. and made a hash of it. Uh, it's crony capitalism. It's private companies working hand in glove with government. Uh, it's loathsome. Can I just say, please, uh, before I leave, 
that uh, James Whale has been a great mate of mine for over 20 years. Mm. Uh, gave me some of my first breaks, really, by getting me onto his late night show uh, when he was over at Talk Sport. And uh, I was uh, as upset as I think all of your listeners will yep. be to hear of his medical condition. He did have cancer badly 20 years ago and got over it. Um, it looks like an uphill fight, but I just wanted, please, yes. Mike, to wish James no, listen, all the I'm very, sure, very best. I'm sure he'll very much appreciate that, Nigel. I remember those days when you used to come in and we'd share a, a smoke or two out on the old fire escape at the old building. But uh, That's right. I spoke to James a little while ago, um, and he is a fighter, as you know, and, and he beat it once before. We're all uh, wishing him the very, very best. He's going to be talking yeah. to us all this week, uh, and I'll certainly pass on your, uh, your good wishes to him. Nigel, listen, great job once again this week. Thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, we shall be making more revel- revelations I'm sure, uh, as the weeks go on. Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit party, uh, the only, it would seem, investigative journalist left in this country, which is quite remarkable in and of itself. And as for James Whale, uh, you may not have seen the news, but yes, he has got uh, cancer back uh, again, I'm afraid. But he's going to be talking to Dan Wooten this afternoon uh, and telling Dan exactly how he feels, what he thinks he's going to be able to do and how he hopes very soon to be back on the radio right here at Talk Radio, uh, his rightful place uh, in the commercial radio world. A, a great man uh, and a fantastic colleague and friend as well. Uh, Nigel Farage, though, you have to say, um, is doing a sterling job. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk about Morrison's first of all, though, because we're going to talk to Claire Bailey now, independent retail expert, uh, because Morrison's have decided, and I always thought this was a con, to do away with their bags for life. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Claire, and a very good morning to you. I thought a bag for life meant that you got to keep it for life. But not just for Christmas. No, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, yes and no, I suppose, because the whole premise behind the bag for life is it's not going to last forever. They really? do get ripped. And... Well, why don't you call it something else then? Well, I think the whole, I mean, if I just explain the process, if it gets ripped and torn, you give it back and they give you a new one. Ah. Thereby, they're reducing plastic waste, but they're not, incre- they're not reducing it completely. Right. Whereas what they're going to move to is paper bags, which, of course, are far more biodegradable, and therefore they'll probably still offer the same policy. They're also, le- they're also less useful. Yeah, I mean, obviously they can get wet, but we've got to reduce the amount of plastic waste. It is actually cheaper to produce plastic bags because there's been a global uh, sort of drop in the supply of paper products. And I know people in the packaging industry who are struggling with this enormously. Mm. But from a point of view of what's right for the planet, I suppose, uh, either using fully biodegradable and recyclable plastics, which I think Tesco's have gone to, or moving to a paper product, which, of course, Primark have done successfully for years, does make sense from an environmental standpoint. Yeah, but you're not carrying much that's very heavy coming out of Primark, are you? Whereas you're carrying a few tins of tomatoes. You've obviously not bo- gone shopping with a teenage girl lately. Uh, no, it's not something I do, <laughs> to no, be honest. No. I've got they teenage designed, boys and I don't go with them either. They are designed to take up to a certain weight. It's never going to be as good. Yeah, but it's, not, but it's not going to be, but, it, but it's not going to be clear, is it? Like putting two bottles of water, two two litre bottles of water and say four tins of tomatoes in a plastic, in a paper bag, walking out into <laughs> the rain as it was yesterday and seeing yeah. the bottom falling out of it. No, no, of course not. But I guess that uh, they've got to make an environmental standpoint. And by removing plastics, it does generally uh, appeal to a majority of consumers who are trying to do the ah, right thing. See, that's there what are other materials about, out there. I mean, there's things like jute that people have used, much more stronger fabric bags, which, again, are more sustainable materials. Um, but yeah, the Remember those old net bags that, that grannies used to have? Yeah. 
again, though, they're not tending to be made of recyclable materials. But, I mean, go back to the old days of using the cardboard boxes. I've seen at some of the supermarkets at the end of the checkout, yeah. you, you recycle the cardboard that their product was originally delivered in. Yes. But the, irony of all, the irony of all this, Claire, though, is that they all it's all very well doing away with the plastic bag, but everything you buy is already covered in plastic anyway. So why don't they do away with that? <laughs> Well, there is a move towards that. Obviously, it's one step at a time. Otherwise, then your shopping would be dissolving in two layers. <laughs> well, I mean, I remember I when they first... Uh, when they in the right direction. Do you remember when they first started charging for plastic bags and you'd see all these mm. people walking out of supermarkets, like, clutching their groceries in their arms and dropping them all <laughs> over the place? I mean, that's soon passed. But I tell you what also annoys me about this. One uh, is that it's not actually more economical or ergonomically good uh, to make paper bags because paper bags and the process for making them is actually yeah. incredibly polluting and incredibly poisonous to the environment. Exactly, and actually I've, I've had this argument about recycling paper causes more uh, effluent into the uh, environment than making yeah. fresh paper from new trees. Right. That's a whole other debate. But I do think that it's a misnomer to call anything a bag for life. They weren't, they were replaced on a semi-regular basis, so they still incurred a greater level of plastics in the environment, which is what they're trying to avoid. Yes. It moves the problem elsewhere potentially, as we saw when we saw the first um, electric cars coming out, batteries, decommissioning costs and so on. Mm. It was something of sort of moving the problem somewhere else in the supply chain. But I think it's good to see supermarkets at least making an effort, given that every household apparently generates 140 wasted plastic bags a year, which is an awful lot if you think about the number of people in the UK alone. Well, that's true. Um, But the problem, of course, as well, uh, is that uh, plastic bags if, if, if they are sold to you for 10p and you are told that you can keep them, um, what's wrong with that? It's not actually causing any pollution if you're not throwing them away. But when they begin to fall apart, you return the falling apart one and they give you a new one at no extra charge. The so 10p is 10p for life. But the bag might be replaced. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is is that these figures of people throwing away 140 bags a year. I mean, that's not very many people, I wouldn't think, because most people don't do that. It's the fact that each household is issued with 140 new bags a year. That means that 140 bags per household per year have to go to either landfill or recycling or end up as litter. Mm. And I think certainly we've seen plenty of evidence that people are still not that conscious about littering so providing people with biodegradable options at least limits harm on the environment at large Mm. so if i go down to morrison's this afternoon with a load of plastic bags that i claim are bags for life will they give me a refund Uh, there will never be a refund probably they will swap them out if you because obviously you've committed to your template for life but if the brag start to degrade they swap it if they've already removed all the plastic bags that might not be the case it'll be an interesting one to see if customers get riled by that hopefully people will recognize it was only 10p and that there's bigger things to worry about well it always does worry me when i see these kind of quotes this from david potts the chief executive of morrison's we believe customers are ready to stop using plastic carrier bags as they want to reduce the amount of plastic in their lives and keep it out of the environment well that's all very well for him to say i don't know who he's been talking to but how does he know what people want well, of course, they'll run customer focus groups and they'll have a snapshot view of a, a majority of their customers. It won't be all of them. I mean, they have a view that X number of customers like to use self-checkout, but that leaves you with the others that definitely don't. So there's always those that won't appreciate it, and for good reason generally, not just because they want to waste plastic. I mean, you'd have to be kind of a strange human being to be down that direction. But as you rightly say, they're not as ergonomic. They're not as handy for other functions. And, you know, it's, it's a bold move. 
but at least they're making an environmental standpoint. And I think that somebody has to lead the way. And perhaps looking at other materials, not just paper, like I say, you know, buy a bag for life that's five pounds, but it's made of juice and it's actually strong enough for your tins of tomatoes and bottles of water. Yeah, but what do I do when it finally disintegrates? Then, of course, they need to have a bag for life policy. They'll swap <laughs> it out for you. A jute bag for life. I've got a great tweet here from Jim who says, what about, as Terry Rogan once said about toothbrushes, has anyone tried to break into some sea bass lately? Because they do, they have that kind of shrink wrap plastic, which it literally, unless you've got a pair of scissors and a scalpel uh, and <laughs> yeah. a bunch of other medical equipment, you can't get into it. No, and I think plastics is a real difficult one for groceries because obviously it keeps the product clean, fresh and safe from a food hygiene standpoint, but then it does also increase the amount of plastic waste. I think we'll always have plastic in our life, but where we can try to use alternatives that are better for the environment and not using oil-based resources, it is going to generally be the direction that customers want to move towards. Yes, I'd just rather I wasn't dictated to by people that run shops and make money from me. <laughs> I mean, call me old-fashioned. Well, the alternative was legislative. Well, um, I, knew, so I know, I know, I know now. Well, I know now why there's a reason I never went to Morrison's. Now I'm never going to go, even if there's the only one left. But thank you, Claire Bailey, independent retail expert there on the whole bag for life con. Because trust me, it was a total con. I knew it was never a bag for life. Um, I bought a couple of them just because I had to. I'm going to turn up at Morrison's, I think, and I'm going to give them all back and ask for my money. I think I should, shouldn't I? Even though I didn't get them there, doesn't matter. If they want to get rid of plastic, they should be very happy to pay me to give the plastic back, shouldn't they? This is Talk Radio. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, Peter Hitchens and I have been talking now for the best part of probably three to four months, I would imagine. Um, When we started, we were disagreeing about why the lockdown was necessary. Uh, Nowadays, we agree on more than we disagree on. And I I know that he, like me, will be astonished uh, to see the picture on the pages 10 and 11 of The Times this morning, uh, in which an Italian army um, plane appears to be flying over a beach in Tuscany checking out to make sure people are not coming out from under their sun umbrellas. It's quite an extraordinary picture. Peter, very good morning to you. Good morning. I don't know whether you've seen this picture in The Times. Yes, I did. It's kind of chilling, isn't it? Well, yes. Uh, and, of course, it's, it's a sign of the, the huge extension of state control of private lives. Yeah. The idea that the state should be remotely interested in the way in which we arrange our corpulent bodies on yeah. beaches yeah. is just beyond belief to someone like me who, who grew up in a world where... 
such a thing would be comical. Well, exactly. I suppose one can only hope that the Italian army remains as inefficient as it has <laughs> legendarily always been. Yeah, but it struck me, looking at it, that it's not a million miles away from somebody with a rifle just kind of picking you off as you try well, and sort of make your way to the hot dog step. stand. If they start shooting people for getting out of line on beaches, then we really are at the end of civilization. I, mean, I, think, I think that's a bit of a jump, though. We haven't quite gone. That's half the problem with, with what's going on. It's not serious enough to frighten people. Uh, and I think my side should now perhaps adopt the, the view of the government. We need to frighten people more to get, to, to get them to realize how serious what's going on is. Mm. You remember that the, the extraordinary SAGE document back on March the 22nd, in which the government experts said a substantial number of people still do not feel sufficiently personally threatened. Yeah. The perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased among those who are complacent using hard-hitting emotional messaging. The following day, the day after that piece of advice was delivered, uh, they shut down uh, the economy and introduced mass house arrest. Mm. Uh, and, and it's all been based on fear. And very effective it is, too. People in huge masses are afraid of something which isn't really a menace to them. Well, they're not afraid or something which is, which is the invasion of their, their, their privacy and of their personal freedom, and indeed the, the takeover of the state by effectively a very small uh, body of people, uh, unaccountable, uh, shortly to move into a special uh, space-age office in, in, in the Cabinet Office, uh, completely uncontrolled by Parliament, completely unrestrained by the judiciary. We are effectively living in a country which is turning into an autocracy. Uh, I, while I am absolutely not an apologist for Mr. Lukashenko in Belarus, it seems quite funny for me, to me, for, for, for everyone to get, getting so pious about uh, his obviously rigged elections and his repression, as we in our own country head towards our own version uh, of, a, of an unfree, uh, lawless, uh, autocratic state. Well, indeed. And, and as I saw a piece, I can't remember exactly where I saw it. It might be in the mail this morning, that one in only one in seven people in the cabinet office is actually at work in an office. It's hardly surprising well, that they're not yeah, encouraging I, anybody else. I, I don't want them. I, people always used to say, what, complain about MPs going on holiday. And I would say, for goodness sake, what are you, what, what are you complaining about? When they come back, they only, they only pass stupid, unnecessary laws all the time. Encourage them to go to spend as much time as possible on the <laughs> beach. It's not, it's not that I want them to be there all the time. It's that I want them to be there when the government is doing bad things which need to be restrained and I want people of the calibre of Gerald Tamdiel and proper MPs like that to stand up in the House and say this has gone too far. Uh, you're, you're arrogating to yourself powers that you should not have unaccountably and it's time we debated it properly and, and, and looking around this chamber of zombies it's time all of you began to earn your, earn your rations because I don't think MPs at the moment are earning their no, rations. No, I don't think I don't, so. I don't think they should be paid. I think it's, it's ridiculous that mm. they, should, they should be paid and have any status given their complete failure to hold the government to account during the past few months. But don't you think we are also in a time when we are not governed really by um, ministers? We're not really governed by MPs anymore. We are now governed by this kind of autocracy of people who are appointed to jobs like uh, the chief medical officer, like the woman who apparently is in charge of the information commissioner, Elizabeth Denham, who apparently has been based in Canada for the best part of the last three months because uh, that's where she decided to work from home from. I mean, it beggars belief and she's well, the woman who's well, meant to be in charge of all the data. Countries are always run by quite small groups of people. The question yeah. is what the restraints are on what they do and, whether, and to whom they are responsible and what happens when they get it wrong. Yeah. And the, and, and the problem, what Not very much, it would seem. Well, what we developed in this country during the 19th century and the early part of the 20th was quite a good system. 
by which if governments misbehaved, then Parliament could give them a very hard time, and so could the media, and they could be they could be pushed back into line. But now we have a, a, a Parliament which is, 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 as I say, is a zombie, supine body of people who, who who simply don't seem to understand what they're there for, and a media which, to a great extent, has has died. Yeah, and there are there are exceptions. Uh, and here we are in yes. one. But for well, the interesting. most part, I, I read I, I read newspapers which remind me of the of this of the Soviet uh, state and Communist Party newspapers that used to be delivered in great grey wadges to my flat in Moscow in the early 1990s. It, there is no dissent from the basic way in which the country is being run. Yes, because there was plenty of criticism of the government, but it was kind of what I call pantomime criticism in these press briefings where ludicrously complicated questions would be asked yeah. about why the lockdown wasn't done this way or that way. There was no yeah. question of whether it should have been done. Exactly, and that, that, that and and also these people are just showing off. They're yeah. just try, trying to they're trying to get on TV and 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 get, get noticed uh, for for career purposes. Right. But they have no interest whatsoever. It seems to me, in most cases, in questioning the government. And I, there has been I, from almost from the start uh, an absence of people saying, "Why are we doing this? Mm. Have you done the right thing?" And the same thing is really happening with all this this, this A level fuss. I, yeah. I, the, the fundamental thing is, why were the schools closed? Yeah. Well, exactly. Was, Why were the exams not helped? Also, stupid yeah. mistake. Even even on the basis of what of what of, of the of the the COVID believers uh, who actually think that we're in the midst of a terrible plague. Even on that basis, there is no serious evidence that infections have been taking place in schools anywhere. There was no reason to close the schools. It was a complete blunder. And, and yet, all we concentrate on is not the, the mistake of the closing of the schools, but the mistake subsequently yes. made in trying to manage the closing of the schools. Right. Once again, the fundamental question is not asked, and therefore it is not answered. Also, even and if I you... Have to, I have today said, I don't, there's, there's no point in worrying about p- people grabbing my exclusives these days, because nobody else in Fleet Street will follow my story. But, <laughs> so I can cheerfully say, I have today put in a question to the Department of Health and Social Care, saying, how many people... Uh, after the um, the quarantine was imposed on travellers returning from Spain, how many people who were quarantined have tested positive for COVID nineteen? How yeah. many have been hospitalised? How many yeah. have died? Very good question. I've well, been exactly. asking. I've been asking you... the same question, but I haven't actually put it to them. But go. Good, well, this good is the thing: you. you have to put it to them, but yeah. it's tedious so because it, 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 getting hold of government press offices in an age when half the civil service is, is away uh, is itself a, 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 a struggle. Because they always, whenever you ask any government department anything, the first response is, "That's not us." Please ask somebody else. Yeah. And this battery of agencies are produced who you're sent on to. But eventually I'll get there. But this, is, this, this question needs to be asked. But this was the great... Uh, what was going on here? And, how, and the same thing will need to be asked about the, the crazy destruction of tens of thousands of people's uh, longed-for holidays in France and the ridiculous four-in-the-morning deadline by uh, which they had to scramble back into the country. It's, it's actually verging on cruelty. Uh, especially, imagine a family with, with two or three young children yeah. struggling to get back uh, in, into this country before the imposition of, 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 a, of a quarantine, which might well destroy the livelihood of the yeah. father of that family well, if exactly. he didn't make it in time. And also lots of people, in very good faith, coming back early from their holidays because they were worried the quarantine would affect their children going back to school. If yeah. it was me, I would say, do you know what? You can get stuffed. And if you're going to punish me for not bringing my children back to school because you've imposed a quarantine, that's your problem, not mine. Well, but that, in some ways, that is the spirit. Uh, but the thing is, there isn't any much spirit. 
experience in this country. I, I, I obviously I only see the bits of the country that I see. I travelled into London every day and out again. I get yeah. out and about a bit in my own hometown of Oxford and in London itself. And what I see is a huge amount of compliance, particularly with the muzzle decree. And people are, actually have been told by the government to put muzzles on their faces on the most scrappy evidence, and they've done it. Yeah. I've just and seen it's, a picture. It's terribly uncomfortable and unpleasant for them all, but they all go around with half their faces invisible to anybody, um, mumbling to each other, obediently doing what they're told, with no sign whatsoever that they they think they've been asked to do something beyond the proper powers of government. Right, and as you're and you're right in saying that that, that the sort of the, the mission creep, if you like, of people being used to now covering themselves up in such bizarre ways. I'm looking at a picture here: uh, the crew of the MSC Grandioso uh, preparing to sail from Genoa. Uh, as an airport testing station in Rome screens passengers, a woman uh, who's wearing a face mask, but you can't actually see what's above that because she's wearing what can only be described as a kind of crash RoboCop-style crash helmet with sort of ski goggles on it. You literally can't see any part of her face at all. Well, to be complete, again, if you actually believe the stuff which the government puts out about COVID-19, actually the covering of the eyes is is very important. These yeah. masks are, are, are fundamentally uh, useless because the the mucus uh, surfaces of the eyes are a tremendously important uh, site for infection. And if we really did have a major infection danger, we would have to cover our eyes with some sort of mask of that kind. So in, in a way, uh, what she's doing is taking the government at its, at its word seriously in a way that they don't dare to do because they know perfectly well that it's, it, first of all, people couldn't afford it. And secondly, people wouldn't stand it. Mm. So they concentrate on, on, on these, these cloth nappies, for which there remains no randomized control trial evidence. Mm. They concentrate on, 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 on getting people to wear those because it increases the level of fear and concern and increases the level in the country or, or sustains the level in the country that we are in the midst of a terrible plague crisis uh, from which we have to be rescued by none other than Alexander yeah. Pfeffel Boris Johnson. <laughs> but I've asked you this question before, Peter, and I'm not sure I still am satisfied with the answer. Why are they doing it? I mean, what would be the point of a government um, continually frightening its nation and its populace? Um, what would be the point? Well, you've, you and I have both made bad mistakes, no doubt, in our careers. Certainly I have. And yeah. the first response when you, when you realise that you've blundered is not to go and confess it, is it? The first response is to double down on mm. it and to continue to make the mistake and hope nobody will spot it. Right. And so you think they're, they're being... Led, you think I they're... think they know in their hearts. And I'm sure, actually, I mean, I'm sure that people such as Michael Gove in the cabinet know perfectly well this is a total bungle. Yes, which is uh, why we he don't must... hear much from him these days. No, we've almost nothing has heard from him. No. Uh, I'm sure he knows. I'm sure there are one or two others who have... You know, I, I suspect the Chancellor of the Exchequer, you know, who, who, who also knows that his, you know, his, 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 his whole life is going to catch fire in the autumn when the, when the, the economy goes down the plumbing. Mm. But I, I think that there are people in there who suspect it. Yeah. But they're not going. They're, they're, their political careers are now are now tied, lashed uh, to the uh, to, to the to the career of, of, of Mr. Johnson, yeah. and he is incapable of accepting uh, that he's made a mistake. And the simplest way of carrying on covering up for a mistake is to make it over and over again, deeper and deeper and deeper, and hope that somehow or other you'll come out the other end not too badly damaged. It's what people do. I, I'm afraid this is you, you, if, if you're ever unlucky enough. Uh, to be lost in a car with a fool at the wheel. The, what, the one thing the fool will never do is admit he's made a mistake on the map <laughs> and drive back to the starting point and, and, and go. He'll go drive round and round looking for some other way 
of getting to, to his destination, even if it takes 50 times longer than going back to the point yes. where he made the mistake. So, so in, a, in a way, this is actually worse than, than, than you would have thought, because you made a point this week in your column of saying that you should actually be more angry. People should be more angry about this. But because now what you're saying is, is that this kind of mad path that the government is pursuing is all just to save face. Yes, it is. But, uh, but the, so we are suffering to save the faith. We, we mock uh, the Oriental cultures, uh, the Chinese and the Japanese, for their faith saving. Uh, and yet we do it ourselves. And in, in this case, this is what is going on. And we're being dragged deeper and deeper and deeper into a needless crisis by people who are too proud uh, to admit that they've, they've, they've made a mistake. And I, I think only anger. I'm not advocating law-breaking or anything unconstitutional, but only anger expressed... Uh, increasingly uh, about the general direction of it is going to is, is ever going to change that I, I reached a point I you, you try and uh, but I, I, I survived the, my two years in the Soviet Union by turning my sense of humor which I as you well know doesn't exist no it does I'm sorry I think I've uncovered it that's the shibboleth I, I think it, I've I turned it up to full in the Soviet <laughs> Union it was the only was the only way to cope absolute yeah. max uh, because if you didn't, you you would actually become extremely unhappy and quite yes. possibly go mad. That's what they did. The right. place was full of some of the best jokes ever made in the world because that's the way they coped. But it, it is the point has been reached where I, I'm afraid I I just feel personally now uh, under a sort of strain. Hmm. Uh, no, I, I sleep worse. I, 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 really? I'm more inclined to lose my temper. Mm. Uh, in general, the whole thing is getting to me in ways that, 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 that is that it, it just is infuriating to see such stupidity, uh, not merely carrying on, but going unchecked, yeah. uncriticized. And I'm so angry with so many of my of my media colleagues mm. for being so feeble. And even I mean, I, on Saturday I had to endure. Uh, a, a, an article by Deborah Ross in the Times saying yes. that people who didn't wear face nappies on trains were horrible people. Mm. Uh, she didn't know. She doesn't know anything about the issue at all, as far as I can see. No, no, exactly but, right. But, that but, is but, the but problem. This, but this this thing gets prominent position in one of the in, in, in one of the most important newspapers in the country, and and actually, and I'm not bothered if someone comes up to me and says, "Why aren't you wearing a mask?" I can mm. explain. And 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 uh, uh, but but there are a lot of people who don't want to wear these things, who are afraid of being persecuted in public if yeah. they don't. And many and of them sort of are saying... In my view, this sort of thing will increase that. Yeah, and many of them are saying that's partly why, for example, and you've pointed this out before, they're not coming back to work because they don't wish to wear a mask to get on a train. Therefore, they just won't get on the train. You know, or it's they don't wish to... It's one of many reasons. I, I think... I think the, the, but it, it's... Uh, either you... I do take the yoke. I do say, right, I'm wearing this public declaration that I support the government's policy and, uh, and, and that I am fundamentally prepared to be humiliated by, by the government. Uh, and, and, and that's the sort of person I am. Mm. Uh, or you won't do it. Yeah. Uh, and it, that's why I make such an issue out of it, because it is actually quite important that uh, it, it isn't just a piece of cloth. Yeah. It is a piece of cloth which proclaims, it might as well say on it, I support Alexander de Pfeffel, de Pfeffel yeah. Boris, uh, what's it, Johnson and his stupid government and everything that it does. Uh, I'm not prepared to wear a badge of that kind on any part mm. of my anatomy. And you did say but once... Leave, let, let alone my face, which is now adorned, I should say, by what I think is, is the best of my three beards. It's a very good beard, I have to say. Well, without, kind I of you to, say uh, to blow smoke, as they say. But listen, um, you did say once to me that you thought, out of politeness, you would wear a face covering when you were asked to in certain situations. Are you well, saying you I don't did, do that anymore? Yeah, well, I did... 
when this thing began was I treated th- these people who seemed to me to have gone collectively crazy as if they were a new religion among us. Mm. And it, so, for instance, in supermarkets to begin with, I, 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 I did once I wrapped a scarf around right. my face, that's mm-hmm. a Zorro, yeah. um, out, of, out of respect for them. Because right. um, I thought, well, I'm, I, I, I respect other religions without believing in them. Mm. Um, but that was before the compulsion element came in. Yeah. Because and that does change the, things, isn't it? I, it? To me, it changes it completely. And yeah. I, I, I put out a tweet last week and I said, if you, if you ever wondered how you would have reacted, what position you would have taken during all the great crises and controversies of the last hundred or so years, now you know. Mm. And, and so most people, most people conform. Most people do. And I, this is what people do. I, this is a country where we make rude jokes about the, about the number of French people who collaborated with their occupiers. What do you think we would have done if we'd been occupied by people who, shoot, who, who shot and tortured anyone who, who can? But even, we don't even need to be shot and tortured, do we? We just need somebody to say, we'll fine yeah. you 50 quid if you don't wear Well, I mean, it's now a, a they're threatening... Then, on it goes. Now they're threatening to fine you £3,000. Are you... Well, are you yeah. I mean, I can't really see that happening because why would they wish to create, you know, a public order problem? Because well, in, your, in, your, to, in your right? case, if they tried to fine you £3,000, on the spot, I suspect you would not comply with that. Well, I'm not going into that. I, mean, I, th- I think they would be in, in, legally um, in a very poor position if they if, if they tried to do it at all. But um, mm. but because actually the 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 British law on this or the English law on this, to be more specific, is actually quite open to um, to, to, to allow dissent, mm. which people could use if they wanted to. And this is the amazing thing: people don't. Uh, but it, they, they're, only, they're, they're saying this to look tough. They know perfectly well that the levels of compliance are extremely high. Yeah. Uh, they don't, it, it's, just, it's just done in, in much in the way that Priti Patel pretends to be tough on, on, on immigration. It's just done to look tough, not to be tough. Yeah. Uh, to actually mobilize the police to go around grabbing everybody in the street who, didn't, who wasn't wearing a muzzle and dragging them in and, 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 and forcing them to pay fines. They're not, they're not going to do that. Yeah, but then well, I'll, I'll take. You, let me take you back to. Well, let me take you back to where we started, where you've got Italian military people hanging out of planes uh, with binoculars, staring at people on a beach to see whether they're not uh, lying on a sunbed. Well, you have to ask yourself, as with all photographs, how, like all those pictures of mass graves and huge piles of mm. coffins and all the rest of it that we saw at the beginning of this. How do these pictures come to be taken? Well, presumably there's a press guy in the plane. Yeah, and who asked him up? I and mean, you try and get a trip in a, in a military plane normally. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what listen, I had the misfortune of spending about 10 hours in a, in a Hercules flying over Bosnia, dropping uh, military yeah, meals well, out of a U.S. I, Air Force plane. Yeah, it didn't make much of a photograph either, did it? But I mean, no, I it was dark. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> my, my trip in a Shackleton over the North Sea, yeah. not much of a photograph of that. But uh, no, the point is, any photograph like that, you have to ask yourself, how did it come to be taken? And the, the answer is, obviously, these things are arranged. Yeah. So it, 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 it's it, it, the idea that if... The Italian Air Force spots somebody out of line on the beach. The plane is going to swoop low, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and from loudspeakers on its wings, and yeah. you know, terrible imprecations going. Well, that's ridiculous. Yeah, it's terribly it's surreal. Just, though. It I just mean, it's an atmosphere of, of, of surveillance, which which gullible people, and there are a lot of gullible people. There really are. Will fall for. Yeah. 
There really are. I mean, I've been fortunate in as much as I have not yet been driven mad by this whole business because I've never really had any trust or faith in any government. I've never really relied upon them uh, to rule my life and make it better or worse or anything else. So I think that's kind of somehow saved me from from, from what you what you're going through. But I can only no, no, I can no, only no, try no, to no. counsel you to try and 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 not and, and just not worry about it. Oh, I have to worry about it. It's not the thing is, I, I, as I keep stressing, my own life is is, is one of great good fortune, and, and, and the, the, I'm personally, I'm probably largely left alone. But I, I do grieve for the country. You, know, you sit down, you read the, you know, George Orwell's thoughts about the English yeah. people. You know, this is a country where people people say you can't run me in for that. You can't do that here. Uh, and these these statements were true. Mm. And it simply was the case yeah. until quite recently that you, 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 it really was different here. The government did have more limited powers over us than practically anywhere else in the mm. world. And it's vanishing before our eyes, and nobody cares. Mm. I have to be upset by that. Surely, if I weren't upset by that, there'd be something wrong with me. Okay. Well, that's a good point at which to end, Peter. Thank you as ever. A very interesting conversation once more with Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist. He'll be back same time next Monday, of course. Uh, maybe you're like him. You're you're angry about what's going on uh, or maybe you're like me uh, i'm just kind of resigned to it i try not to let it affect me i try not to get too miserable about it mid-morning with mike graham talk radio now until yesterday i thought i was the lone voice out there of people uh, being critical of some of these students who to me are completely overreacting i mean i heard one this morning talking um about how her life had been ruined and that when she got her results, which were apparently downgraded by a couple of grades, that she felt suicidal. Now, I'm not making light of that by any stretch of the imagination, but if one of my children took their exams so seriously that they considered killing themselves because they didn't get the grades that they wanted, I'd consider myself to have been a pretty bad parent. But let's talk to Matthew Side now, Sunday Times columnist, who wrote a great piece yesterday, uh, which was headlined, Failure is a Lesson Our Children Must Master. Matthew, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. I must, I'm very well indeed. I'm much uh, encouraged by the fact that somebody um, as esteemed as your good self would agree with me effectively, although you wrote what you wrote in a slightly more eloquent way than I'd been, I'd been sort of <laughs> passing it off on the radio. But basically, you're absolutely right. If you don't fail when you're growing up and you're becoming an adult, what are you mm. going to do when you finally are confronted with something that you're not any good at? Well, I mean, it, I, I, my background's in sport. Yeah. So it, I, when you play a match and the opponent beats you, it's a massive learning opportunity. Right. It tells you you need to improve your... I mean, I was a ping-pong player. Yes, you're rather uh, you a good one. You improve your forehand or your backhand yeah. or there's some weakness in your touch return. And that is a, very important that you confront failures mm. and your own weaknesses squarely and honestly mm because that's the best way to improve them. And in fact, this concept of resilience, which is, I think, incredibly important in a world that's changing very fast, yeah. is something I think schools and education establishments should really instill in young people. The, the problem with this, of course, is that... Okay, so there's two different issues. One is, I think you and I would agree completely that resilience is crucial yeah. and a, a huge asset for anybody in, in life. The problem with this is what you want is, is a situation where kids haven't taken the exam, so they can't be measured on their ability there's been an algorithm that has come in to do it for them and i think there probably are some injustices where people performed better than the algorithm is saying mm. but i'm sure there are also instances where kids are being told that they perform at a particular level but they actually the algorithm has upgraded them yes. so these injustices are difficult what i haven't yet heard is how in the absence of an exam how on earth you can accurately determine 
how well the kids have done. So I think it is impossible to... I, I, I mean, I haven't seen any coherent solution to this. No, absolutely right. And I mean, just on, on the on the matter itself, I think we, mm. we could probably also agree that they should never have cancelled the exams in the first place because the one mm. thing that you could properly socially distance is an exam hall where people could sit one metre, maybe two metres apart. I think we saw in some countries they were using football fields because the weather mm. was good enough to be able to do the exam. So, I mean, I've got a son who was supposed to be doing his GCSEs, you know, who kind of didn't know what to do with himself because literally from from the sort of start of may effectively he had no school work to even do no exam yeah. to take and you know so we've been spending as much time as possible trying to occupy his brain you know so yeah. it doesn't turn to mush but you know the point about um the the way that it was devised this system was that supposedly the teaching unions were on board with it they were quite happy to do it but the other question nobody's asking is is it not possible that some teachers have rather over egged the pudding because as i said in my introduction we are governed by schools who are governed by results and who want to get good results. The better results, the better it is for them and their future and their, and their funding. So is yep. it not possible that some of these kids were given sort of rather false hope? Yeah. So, so there's no doubt. I mean, it's very clear um, from the data that predictive grades provided by teachers, on average, exaggerate the ability of the children to pass the exams that in a conventional year they would later take. Right. So this is extremely clear. And had the uh, government accepted the teacher predictions for this year's A-levels, I think it would have been a record number would have got A&A stars. Well, it's like close, close to 40%. Right. Um, so that, but there's, a, there's also a longer-term phenomenon, as you say, of grade inflation, mm. which is effect- effectively exam boards and universities. This isn't just about A-levels. This is university degrees as well, gaming the system. It looks better if you have lots of students getting a first. And therefore, if you artificially provide lots of students a first-class degree, it makes your university look better relative to other universities. Right. But of course, it degrades the whole system. It's like printing money and thinking you're getting richer, where in actual fact you're causing inflation. Right. It just means that the value of the currency goes down and down. And a lot of employees, you probably heard this too, Mike, a lot of employees are saying the value of a first-class degree, the value of a uh, of an upper of an upper second is less than it was mm. because too many people aren't getting them. Yes. and that is another problem. And I think this emerges, and I say this in my column, from this obsession that people should always pass. Yeah, that I think it's very important that we have failure so that people can learn, they can find the standards to which they should aspire, and learn the lessons. Yeah, and also they should learn that sometimes life isn't fair. You know, it's all very well going, it's not fair, you know, I deserve better, which unfortunately seems to be a kind of a, a plaintive cry for anybody now uh, who doesn't like something that's happened. They say it's not fair that somehow they've been, you know, treated worse than anybody else and they're kind of victims of something. Whereas, um, you know, it, effectively, they will encounter lots of situations in life which are not fair. You might as well get used to it, mightn't you? I think that's true. I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, the, the fact that there is a certain degree of randomness and unfairness it is going to always be there. I think you're right. The question yeah. is how you deal with it. And th- then I think it depends on what the situation is. If I, for example, felt that I'd been unjustly treated in a way that had compromised my life and I could find redress... Mm then I think it would be an aspect of resilience to fight against the injustice. Sure. I mean, that's one of the great trends in, in our species history is the ability to fight individually and collectively against injustices. But sometimes you can overreact. I remember there was a... I'm going to forget the name, but there was a... No, I'll tell you, here's a good example. David Beckham. Yes. When he went to AC... Uh, he went to an Italian club. Yeah. 
Capello didn't select him, mm. and he thought he was good enough to be selected. And do you know what he did? He trained harder. Yes. He showed Capello that he wasn't prepared to allow what he perceived to be an injustice to affect him, and he wanted to convince this guy, I'm good enough, yeah. and he eventually got back into the team. There was a rugby player in similar circumstances mm. who wasn't selected. He thought it was unjust. And do you know what he did? He retired. Yeah. He just walked away. Yeah. What a ridiculous way. You know, he could have he could have said to this rugby coach, you know, he wants to select the best team. He doesn't think I'm good enough. I'm sure it's not personal. He just right. maybe doesn't perceive my qualities. I need to work harder to convince him. I hate the giving up approach mm. when you when you face with an injustice or the cry or becoming helpless. Yes, like, or, or, the, or calling for or work hard. Yeah, or... that, that, if that's what you're aiming at, Mike, I completely agree. And I see this a lot. You call it learned helplessness. Yes. Something's gone wrong. I've been unlucky. I'm walking away. That's not the way to Well, do. no, this is what I said last week. You know, this is not about saying, oh, it's unfair, therefore I'm just going to give up. It's unfair, yeah. but I'm going to fight it. And whether yeah, that yeah. means that you go and take the exams again, or whether that means that you find another pathway, you know, certainly now it would appear that a lot of universities are doing the sensible thing, which, which I would have advised them to do anyway, which is to actually accept people who they made an offer to, regardless yeah. of what their grades are. Because to be honest, let's face it, most universities are going to be short of uh, foreign students this year so they might as well take them on anyway yeah no i agree with that and by the way i mean it's interesting historically to trace the grade inflation mm. i mean my my thought is this emerged from what was called the self-esteem movement in the yes. 1970s so this dominated the west coast of america i mean it was absolutely huge over there but it infiltrated particularly left-leaning local ed educational authorities in right. the uk and the idea was if you let children have really easy success experiences, in other words, give them incredibly easy assignments, mm. they'll develop lots of self-esteem because they're passing all the time. And then you kept telling them how talented they are. They get even more self-esteem, right. and then they can go and change the world. The problem was it just taught them to think success was easy. And as right. soon as they were hit by a proper challenge, particularly after they left school, they would start crumbling and falling yeah. apart. And well, I think that was a ma that was a massive mistake. You know, in, in, in my third year, it didn't happen all the way through my primary school, but there was one year where everyone got prizes on sports day. Right. I thought it was ridiculous because mm. it devalued the prize that I won for being the fastest runner because everyone got one. Yeah, well, it's worse than that. When one of my kids was in primary school and he actually won a race individually, and he didn't get anything because they gave the prize to the group, you know, to the team that he was yeah. in. He was in the yellow team or something like that. Right, you know? yeah. And, and I thought, well, what's the, what's the incentive to win a race now? Because all you're yeah. going to do is win it with the team, which is all right if you're playing in a team sport, mm -hmm. but that's not really what it was. But I, I think also, you, you, you know, it's like when you meet these people who tell you how intelligent they are. You go, well, you're not intelligent just because you say you're intelligent. You know, why don't you just be intelligent and I'll, I'll be able to figure it out for myself. <laughs> Similarly, people who say that they have, they've got great self-esteem. I usually, because I'm quite cruel at times, I, I then delight in deconstructing them and, and watching, watching them sort of fall apart before my very eyes. Because nobody has got great self-esteem. We're all full of doubt. No matter how intelligent you might think you are, no matter how brilliant you might be, everybody has moments when they sit down and think, what are we going to do now? Yes, quite. And by the way, you talk to anybody with true intelligence yeah. they understand that self-doubt is part of life of course they can encompass that self-doubt they've been very realistic about their own weaknesses mm. I, mean, I remember talking to james dyson about how he created his huge vacuum brand yes. he said you know i just learned that i needed to fail very quickly in order to understand what he called the dynamics of airflow in mm. other words he kept creating these prototypes some of them didn't work 
Some of them struggled with long strands of hair. Yeah. But every single failure, he wrote down the lessons into a book. He changed the design of the mm. prototype. And eventually, he had a working design. And that's something, I think, which is really important. If you're going to really learn fast, you need to fail fast, too. Yes. And that is something that we need to equip young people. It's no good just... Uh, you know, one of the, the issues with exams today is often you're effectively regurgitating information like chemical mm. formulae or other things of that kind that have been absorbed through time. Nothing wrong with that, but you also need to be able to not just answer questions, but ask questions. Yes. Perform experiments, test things out, you know, deal with ambiguity in the real world. It's not always yes or no answers. No. There's often grey areas. And our kids being able to navigate their way through that greyness and that ambiguity is crucially important. Absolutely right. But I fear that a lot of schools, certainly uh, ones that I've been associated with, with my own children, do not teach that. They don't teach that you mm. should question things. They teach that you should go along and conform with everything. And they actually tell you in some ways, particularly when it comes to kind of cultural matters, uh, precisely what to think. And you're wrong to think anything else. So my experience with schools, I think there's big variation. I think there's some very progressive schools, mm. uh, progressive in a good sense, that they are getting young people to try things, to fail. They're giving them experiences where they're learning to develop social confidence, speaking in public, yeah. debating, thinking ideas that the teachers might disagree with, occasionally questioning the teachers, yeah. disagreeing. All of these things, I think, are important. And I think you go to some schools, and they really get this. They understand that an education... Of course, having rigorous knowledge at the end of your time at school is crucially important. I, I wouldn't want to diminish that at all. But also equipping people with the things that are important. You know, you and I know that you can, you can be successful in life without necessarily knowing how to do trigonometry. Yes. You can be successful in life without knowing how to figure out how certain things happen in geography. Right. But that is to do with a certain degree of social confidence, social skills. And I think Schools need to think very creatively about instilling those too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've met people who are in their 20s who basically have an incredible lack of general knowledge because their belief system has told them that they could Google everything and so they don't need to know anything, which yeah. is a remarkable place to be if you've come through an education system which included a degree. Yeah, that's that's troubling. It that really is. is. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I hear from employers, I mean, so I you know, have a consultancy business and, and work with, with, with businesses about how to improve their recruitment and culture. One of the things that I hear, firstly, you know what? A lot of young people are very good. I mean, they hire young people who bring a distinct perspective that really helps them to understand their clients better. They bring a whole range of new ideas into the business. That's all very healthy. But there is one of the problems they're finding is that you start a new job. If you've been at a school uh, and, and you've basically gone to lessons, you have a timetable, you're given a syllabus, you're given information from teachers, it's all something that you basically absorb. And mm. people walk into a job and expect that they're going to be told what to do. It's all going to be very clear. But what companies want are young people who join a company and forge their own career path. Yes who can go out there and find new clients, who can start thinking in a fresh way about how to deal with their existing client base. In other words, people who can, as it were, curate their own life and aren't constantly waiting. You know, after the uh, reunification of, of Germany, mm. to go back to 1990, one of the things that people expected was that West German firms would benefit from this huge 
pool of relatively cheap labour from the East. What actually happened is because the communist system was very much command and control, people had to wait to be told what to do by the political masters. The companies were all state-owned, and and the workers were told what to do in a very regimented way. And in the West German companies, they couldn't step up, if you see what I mean. They lacked initiative. Because they didn't know how. They didn't know how. So I, I don't, I'm not comparing uh, university graduates today or, or, or school leavers to what was happening mm. in East Germany. All I'm saying is that in our digital future, where industries are being disrupted and destroyed at an ever faster rate, initiative, personal agency, the capacity to ask questions is becoming more and more important. Yeah. And I want to see more of that in our schools and universities. Absolutely. And, I mean, we have to stop soon because uh, this could lead literally everywhere because I would say to you that some of the people currently high from COVID-19 are similar. They're waiting for the government to tell them that they can do something. You know, I, I, I found that absolutely remarkable when Beth Rigby uh, at one of those press briefings asked the Prime Minister whether she could sunbathe on a Sunday or a Monday. And I'm going, what's wrong with you? You know, what, you have to get permission to sunbathe now? I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, one of the things that I'm wrestling with, I don't know if you have a strong view on this, is that when COVID came along, a whole range of viable businesses were suddenly unable to sell their wares, mm. particularly in hospitality and entertainment, because of government regulations on social distancing. So the furlough scheme, the business support structure that the government put in place as a temporary measure seemed to be to be a rational response to what they hoped would be the temporary yeah. scenario of social distancing. What you're saying, I mean, one of the implications of what you're saying is one of the problems with furloughing is that it prevents people thinking creatively about what will we do with this new reality? What skills do we need to cope with a situation that might be persisting indefinitely? There may be social distancing for 6, 12, 18 months. And of course, when you freeze an economy, you don't have this opportunity to radically rethink how we are doing things. That balance, I think, is treacherously difficult. I, I, I don't envy the Chancellor having to weigh these two very different things as the they don't know how long social distancing would last. They don't know when the vaccine is coming. So I, 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 think I find it difficult to be completely sympathetic to people who either say, on the one hand, the furlough scheme is ridiculous, it's, right. it's labelling, you know, it's, it's, it's putting lots of debt onto future taxpayers. Yeah. On the other hand, those who say we need more furlough, I feel uncomfortable about yeah. too. I think this is just a treacherously difficult balance. Yeah, it very much is. Now it's time for the plug for the book. You've got a great new book coming up, Dare to Be You, in September, yes. which, which sounds very much up the street of what we've just been talking about. How did you know about that? I, I, you're producing this. Is, I'm, I'm, Listen, I'm we, don't, we, don't, we don't miss a trick here at the Independent Republic. Well, I must thank the Independent Republic. Because I do, it's, ironically, apparently there are about 500 books or 1,000 books coming out in early September, the same time as, as mine. So okay. It's quite difficult to actually get on and talk about it. But this is for young people. Mm. It's, for young, it's saying to young people, effectively, exactly the conversation we're having. You know, if you face injustice, fight it. If you fail, don't see that as a reason to give up and walk away from life. You keep going. Develop those skills that are going to be so important. And don't wait for life to happen to you. Seize life. That is the key lesson for young people. And if they can take, you know, we tell stories in the book about famous people, celebrities, and and not famous people, Mm. just to try and give them this this basic idea that if you don't understand something in class, put your hand up and ask. Right. Kids don't put their hand up. They say, well, oh, I better not put my hand up. People might think I'm there. You put your hand up. Ask questions. Be prepared to go to the front and, you know, act in the school play if that's what you want to do. Don't worry that he occasionally fluff your lines. 
know, Mike Graham has fluffed his lines on radio. I fluff my lines. It's not about fluffing your lines. It's about building back when things go wrong. Exactly. I do it on a regular basis. You know, it keeps my, it keeps my hand in. But I'm the antidote to Robert Peston. I always ask the stupid questions because I find stupid questions to politicians get much more interesting answers than ones where you're trying to be clever. Yeah, yeah and that's another thing, by the way, is when you think about the effect for the media of COVID, I think in that early stage, the gotcha questions mm. from journalists who are seeking to look more intelligent than scientists and politicians really antagonised the public. What they the did. public were looking for were the, the, the they want information. question. They wanted information. They yeah. wanted questions to elicit the information they needed to understand the risks to them. They didn't want any of this sort of ultra-sophisticated questioning that tried to tie down whether or not this vaccine had that particular mm. chemical ingredient or so. So I think that was a problem. I think the media, to be frank, has been on a learning curve during this too. Yes, well, let's hope they've learned. I mean, we certainly have. Matthew, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Matthew Side, uh, he's got a book out, Dare to Be You, in September. Uh, sounds like a good read, uh, as all of his stuff is. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, it's time for a very special edition of Homeschooling, uh, because we have searched far and wide for an expert in Spanish, um, and we found one, and her name is Marta Malagon, and luckily she was already here. Hola. Hola. How this are you? This is the easiest booking. Como está? Uh, uh, muy bien. Ah, see, that's where it stops with me. There's a, there's a woman uh, that I talk to from Colombia uh, mm. who works here, and th- I, I always say, you know, hola, and then she says something back, and then I go, como está? And then she yeah. says, muy bien. Muy bien. And, yeah. then, and then I stop, and then because I don't know what else to say. Well, So what um, else could I say after that? So if you say como esta and she says muy bien, yeah. ideally she would say y tú. Yeah, meaning oh, how are you? Yes. yes. And then you could say muy bien, you could say bien, which bien. is like okay, right. yeah. You could say regular, which is like regular. So. Yeah. Or you could say mal. Mal, yeah. Which is bad. Right. Okay. So, but in your case, it would always be it would always be it muy bien anyway. Be muy bien, but do you yeah. need to say muy bien as well or something as well? Like also. No, no, you can no? say oh, muy bien or muy bien también, which también means two. Right, también. So, okay. También. All right, so yes. that'll make, that takes me one phrase further then, yes. I suppose. Yes. But that's where we stop again. Well. <laughs> I mean, I'm not I asking you to give me a whole conversation. But well, yeah, that would be, I've said I can this, script it for you. I maybe. said this to Charlotte when she came in to teach me French, mm. that when I'm in Spain, yes. I suddenly remember more words si. because you're kind of, you know, you start saying see. Si. Sí. I mean, you say it to me sometimes, don't you? I do, yeah. Sí. And I say que a lot as well. Right. Que, que. que. Yeah, like que. Manuel. Exactly. Yeah, who was also from Barcelona. He was from Barcelona. Yeah. Yes, Although yeah. not really. Although not really, which, you know, I should Of course, be. that wouldn't happen now, because now if you want somebody to play a person from Barcelona, they yes. have to be from Barcelona. Yes. Because those are the new rules. Maybe I would end up playing Manuel. Could, Manuela. Manuela, Hola. there you go. So, um... <laughs> So, yeah, so kind of generally speaking, it's not a difficult... I don't find... Uh, I find German really hard. Oh, right? yes, German But French and Spanish, I don't... I struggle mm. too much with. I think the good thing about Spanish, which uh, English doesn't have, for example, is that um, you, you see the words written down and that's how you say them. Yes. It's very easy to pronounce them. Whereas right. in English, sometimes you've got, you know, you've got your Mellobones and your Leicesters yes. and... And your rubber and and it's just yeah. like oh my god! Oh, yes, um, <laughs> I get excited. The other thing though is is that there's many different types of Spanish because mm. I remember I think I've told you the story before where I spent some time in uh, a little town near Girona because you told yes. me it said Girona. Yes, because uh, that's Catalan. Because it's Catalan. It's a whole other Whereas story. in if it was in another part of Spain, it would be Girona, wouldn't yes. it? Yes. And so we went to this village somewhere for dinner one night, and my daughter, who you know, 
um, mm-hmm. learned Spanish at school in America, but she learned basically Mexican Spanish, yes. right? So she can understand Spanish, but we went into this place and it had a Catalan menu oh, God. and no English at all. And yeah. The guy didn't speak English. It was a very small place. Nobody spoke English. She couldn't understand the menu. But that's because Catalan is a completely different language. Uh which is something that not many people know. No. But um, so I would say I always describe Catalan as like halfway between Spanish and French. Okay. So the the fact I was I was raised bilingual, yeah. speaking uh, Spanish so and Catalan. So are those completely different words then for things? Yes, for most things. Really? Yeah. I mean, you would have like little things that are the same. Right. But so that conversation the, we just had about, you know, como esta, mi brian, and all of that, is that different in Catalan? A little bit. Okay. So it would be um, hola, yeah. como estas. Stars. But instead of like bien, it would be B or like mol B. Okay. Y tú, mol B también. Right. So, so you know, it's, quite different, it's similar it? but different. So right. if you see it written down, I would say that if you're a Spanish speaker and you see it written down, you won't have a problem. Right. But if you hear it, and especially because we've got loads of different accents as well, yeah. um, you, you would be So if people lost. go into Barcelona, say for the weekend, mm. um, even though you'd have to quarantine when you come back, obviously, yeah. um, there's no point in them learning Spanish then, really. They should learn Catalan. Or do people or, or speak both? People speak both equally, so yeah. it doesn't really matter. Okay. Although these days I would say that, you know, with English you can get to like the most touristy places. Yeah. But it's always good to know like little things like the classic dos cervezas por favor. Yes. Or la cuenta. That one I can do la cuenta. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you always you need can, to know that one. Yeah, you always need to do la cuenta. Always say por favor and gracias. Yeah. Which means thank you. Always say hola when you right. get somewhere and always say adios. Right. Or and I've always got this luego. one phrase in my head which I which I learned because Steve Martin used to do, and I mean Steve Martin the comedian yes. used to do this stand-up thing where he yeah. did where he did a, do a bit of Spanish and it was, Donde está Casa de Pepe? Yes. Right? <laughs> and I don't even know why you would ever say that to anybody, but it's where is your father's house, isn't it? Yes. It? Yeah. But also, um, it's very useful to know the donde está yeah. because that means where is. Where is, yeah. So you could say, uh, donde está la playa. La playa, yeah. The you beach. You could say, donde está el restaurante. Yeah. Donde está la estación de tren, which what? is train station. Train station, okay. Yes. So, so that's you very see, if versatile. you think about it, that sounds like train station. If you, yes. If, as long as they don't say it too fast, no, I suppose. No, no. And right. also, if you see it written down, then right. then, then you know it's, it's easier as well. Right. And one of the like, things that people say is difficult about English is that all the tenses that you have to learn, like the, the future tense and the past tense, ah, and how does that work in Spanish? I disagree with that. I think Spanish is much harder oh, is it? in okay. that sense. Yes, because English is like, it's very sim- it's simpler in the sense that you've got your, you know, your present yeah and you've got your future with it was like will i will whatever and right. then i'm going to do whatever right whereas in spanish you've got so many different tenses for future and they all like come from because it comes from latin spanish. but we have as well though you maybe just don't know what they are because there's plu- future pluperfect and all that kind of stuff yes right? so we do have that in spanish but the, the and and it's just like I don't know how to explain this, but English, it's much more simple in the sense that you've got some keywords like will or would or would, right? Or I would have done whatever. Whereas in Spanish is like some, so let's just say, um, if you said I would have um, gone to the cinema yesterday, but it was raining. Right. In Spanish would be like, I don't know, I'm giving this example. (laughs) Uh, Hubiera ido al cine ayer, pero estaba lloviendo. Okay. So it's just like it's much more complicated great, grammatically. Though. So, um, so yeah, lloviendo as it's raining today. Well, do you know what? I was going to say, just before you came in, it looked like the end of the world out there. Yes. It was like very black and very low clouds, lots of rain. Seems yes. to have passed. Seems so to have gone a bit further away. Lluvia. 
is rain in okay. Spanish. Lluvia. Lluvia. Okay. Sol is sun. Uh, sun. Yeah. Um, what what well, else? Have got have snow because you don't have much of that, do you? No, we don't. But we have a word for it, okay. which is nieve. 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 Okay. Which is very similar to the word nueve, which is nine. Ah. That's so, difficult, you know. isn't it? Yeah, yes. actually, we should try and learn the numbers. Let's we? learn the numbers. One so, to ten. Um, we're going to start with zero. Okay. Because it's cero. Cero. Uno. Uno. Dos. dos tres, tres. Cuatro. Cuatro. Cinco. cinco seis. Six. Siete. Not six, sorry. Seis. Siete. <laughs> sorry. Write that down for the periods, guys. <laughs> seis. Seis. Siete. Siete. Ocho. Ocho. That's my favorite. Nueve. Nueve. Diez. Diez. Diez? Diez. Okay. I think I've only really ever counted up to five before. Wow. You know. That is something. But, you know, because when you're ordering things. Yeah, you don't need you more don't than that. You normally go, you know. Diez cervezas, you por know, favor. Ocho cervezas. Yeah, although you never know. You might be eight people. You could be. Um, so I thought I'd teach you how to say the talk radio phone number. Okay. In Spanish. What's talk radio in Spanish? Is there a, if you had a talk radio. Uh, hmm. It doesn't really translate because talk in in Spanish would be hablar. Hablar. Yes. Hablar from the radio. Bird, talk. So you so, see, so, so, yeah. So radio. hablar radio. That's good. Which doesn't really. It's not very commercially. No. Friendly, I would say. Okay. But it would say talk radio. I don't know. Talk radio. <laughs> talk radio. <laughs> you would have to roll your R's. Though. Yes. That's very important in Spanish. You always roll your R's. Radio. Radio. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's like Marta. Right. So that's what I should call you, Marta. Yes. Okay. See. Sí. See. <laughs> sí. So, um, I'm going to teach you how to say the number. Okay. So, it's cero. Cero. Tres. Tres. Cuatro, cuatro. Se, cero, tres, cuatro, cuatro. 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 Nueve, nueve. Nueve, nueve. And then we'll say mil. Mil, which, which, which means one thousand. Right. So, so, cero, tres, cuatro, cuatro. Cuatro, nueve. Is it nueve? Nueve. Nueve, nueve. Mil. Yes. There we are. Muy bien. Call us from Spain. Anytime. Hey. <laughs> Very good. España. 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 From now on, España. Gracias. Gracias. Is that the right thing to say? Yes. At this point? Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much indeed. Marta. Marta. Muchas you gracias. Have to, you have to have quite a sort of um, movable tongue to say that, don't you? I guess Marta. so. You know what? When I was a child, I was not able to roll my R's. So, yeah. so I had to be taken to like a specialist that they would teach me. So they would teach me how to do that. I just wow. do them with my throat. Yes. And it well, because them... if you're not used to doing it, you mm. have, it's, it's like the linguistic kind of equivalent of learning how to do a different exercise. Yes. Yes. Where you didn't ever do it before. Mm. So your body's not used to it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. I tried to learn Welsh for a while. Oy. And they've got like a few noises like that you that can't, I can't you say. Can't, Welsh is impossible. Yeah. Sometimes I, I go through phases of like trying to learn new languages. So I've tried Scottish Gaelic. Yes. Which is impossible That's as well. Also and I've tried yeah. Welsh and, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't yeah. do it. But, you should um, try this Cornish, I think, as well. Should we go with that? That's probably oh, quite really? hard as it's well. It's not on Duolingo, so. though. So, you know, I try to do it on my phone when ah, I'm. Right. You know, on a train or okay. a bus or right. things like that. Very good. But anyway. Well, I think we all learned something there. Thank you very much indeed. Marta yes. <laughs> uh, Malagon uh, from Barcelona. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 